Alan Kring Productions, in association with Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Autumn Semester 2022. Today, free cash flow. The uh, topic is the last of the chapter topics. Now, when we come back, there will be a week of uh, material that will not be in the book. You'll have supplemental resources for it. It, ha it There's a lecture on the Federal Reserve System and how important that is in finance. And then one last topic on ethics, specifically targeting the world of finance. So those will be the last week, and then we'll go into the week of the final of the week of the final. Now that weekend before the final, I'll have a Zoom session, at least one, where you can come in and ask questions. I'll probably be on a Saturday night, uh, give you something wonderful to do instead of going out and enjoying yourself. So you'll have that. Mm. Ah. How sweet it is. Uh, how are you going to look at the numbers here to crank this thing up? Oh, looky, we were down. Oh, the floor fell out from under. When I, uh, I, I opened the last class, and that was at 2 o'clock, and the market was still up, and it just took a toilet break there at the end. Uh, Dow down almost two-thirds of a percent. The S&P down 0.89% more, and the NASDAQ down the most, 1.12%. So the market just got all kinds of knocked around there in the last uh, trading hour before the bell. You can see that it had actually been fighting to stay bullish territory through the midday and into the afternoon, but then it just gave up and the bears went to work on the picnics, and that was it. I have to remember to do something here, to show you something here in a minute, but first, oil down into that band, as I had described for you, you can see this, this is just how, I, I, it's been, I've worked in this business, oil and gas for, oh God, uh, 25 years, uh, and you kind of get this sense of where the market wants to be, and it, it's comfortable there in that 82 to 89. It gets too much above that, it gets spooked and goes back down. It gets below that, it gets spooked and goes back up into the band. Now gold, oh for God's sake, will you stop showing things like that? Goodness. Uh, gold and silver were up a little bit, a little movement into those two. Over here in the bonds, the yields were up, so the prices were down. So investors were selling bonds. They were selling equities. There was a little bit of buying in the in metals. Nothing. That's not really old silver, though. That's a strong swing in silver. Don't know why that was going on, but the the. There, there's kind of a uh, market that are a little spooked right now. I'm not too worried about it turning into a rout. But as you can see, <coughs> Tokyo was in a really bad mood all day, 
and there just before the bell, it was starting to drop really hard. You can see that see there at the end, that's that sell-off that was happening in the last uh, half hour or so. And then when the sun rose in London, well, they were up. And it was a pretty strong day. There was a little sell-off there at the end. But whatever was going on over there sure wasn't going on over here, especially by the end of the day. It'll be interesting because as the sun sets here, it'll be coming back up over in Tokyo in a few hours. And I'm wondering if Tokyo, which was on its way down when they closed yesterday, is going to pick up this pace of, bull, of bearish sentiment and drop hard on the message that's coming out of uh, Wall Street. Don't know, though. Hard to say. Let me show you something. Warnings about, warning, let me show you. Um, Eli Lilly. Let me show you the five-day chart. Dropped off the face of the earth Friday. Why did it do that? Does anyone know what happened? Yeah. Just the whole Twitter like verification thing from one of the verified. Eli Lilly, spokesperson, and announced that Eli Lilly was going to start giving out insulin free. Yeah. And of course, the bottom dropped out. Because every son of a bitch who invests knows that Eli Lilly makes a, a huge percent of its revenue off its insulin. And if you had thought about it, 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 yeah, we're going to give away free what we've been making our fortune on all these years. <laughs> and, uh, uh, okay, a larger lesson here. Uh, aside from Elon Musk being he of the cloven hoof, a narcissistic personality disorder sociopath, he does not know how to run companies. My God, he's driven companies into the ground. He bought Tesla, screwed the guy over for Tesla, and then he's running this. And I, I'm going to set up. I mean, who is that actor who uh, does Thor in the uh, Marvel movies? Who is it? Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, I'm going to make a verified account. I'm him now, okay? Yeah, I'm going, I, I'm going to do it tonight. And I'm also going to set myself up as Kanye West. I'm going to set myself up as Taylor Swift. I'm going to influence these damn markets for no reason whatsoever. Don't believe the internet for God's sake. I don't care how verified it is. I don't care. I, I mean... Look, okay, I was an evangelist. I think it's okay if I change my name on Twitter to Jesus. Uh, God, don't believe the internet. It, of course, once you know, it took about oh, what what is that? About an hour there for ever for investors to start calling bullshit, but there was still a little worry there. What the hell is going on? because it was a verified account. How are they verifying it? Are they calling my mom? My mom's dead. Okay, so they probably wouldn't just get the answering machine I set up for her. It scares the hell out of her old friends uh, when they call accidentally butt dial her. 
But anyway, okay, don't believe internet scuttlebutt. There are places where rumors are good, and you can get some strong information out of them. And there's an old saying, and uh, for example, let me show you this one right here, GameStop. I was showing this to one of my advanced classes today in cash management. They don't look very pretty. Uh, GameStop doesn't. It's got a negative beta, which is, I mean, <laughs> and no price to earnings ratio, no dividend uh, being going to be paid. The company on the surface of it looks like it's in very bad shape. But if you look at the fundamentals, let me show you this. Notice how they missed their earnings in the last projections three times in a, three quarters in a row. They blew it. They said, we're going to make this, and they made only that. We're going to make this, and they made even worse. The last time they projected, they were actually a little on the low side. They're going to do an earnings announcement on the 6th of December. They are projecting that earnings are going to be up here. I at slightly negative. I'm betting their earnings are going to be a little higher. And there's a rumor going around that that's, uh, I'm quoting a rumor. And this is coming from people who are relative insiders. There's an old rule, buy on the rumor, sell on the news. Even if they hit it, even if they do what I think they're going to do, I'm going to get out of there a, couple, a day or two before they actually announce their earnings. Because it's the old rule. The rumor is going to push the stock price up more than the news itself will be, so it'll correct back downward. So that's where you, you listen to the quiet voices that are behind the scenes, the professionals. And those guys on TV, the guys on Reddit, the guys on Twitter, they're not pros. If they were, they wouldn't be doing their forecasting there. Okay. Now again, don't take my advice. For God's sake, don't do that. You'll end up like I am, old, uh, bad-humored, and have a crooked nose. Okay, anyway, there's that. <laughs> now, this, this topic is free cash flow. And it sounds like it can be boring as hell. And if, if I were a normal professor, I probably would do it that way. But I'll tell you this, if you use Excel to do this, it's a joke. It's just really easy. You got a, it's a formula, and you just move the spreadsheets around and then do the adds, additions and subtractions there. What makes this uh, a little more interesting is the narrative that leads up to free cash flow. And I start, and I probably have already told you this, uh, about oh, probably about six years ago, I took a group of finance students, and students who were interested in finance, up to Chicagoland where they could meet with some alumni of uh, ISU who were out in industry and they were there to tell these students, here's what it's like out there and give them some advice and answer questions. And we had a very nice all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet. <coughs> I don't think it was in Schaumburg, but it was real, it was close to there. That was the Chinese buffet where everyone went in and I went to the bathroom and there was a guy dead in the bathroom. His son was sitting there waiting for the ambulance to come, and so I insensitively asked the kid what his father had eaten there. But um, anyway, at this uh, question and answer thing, there was one student, she graduated 
probably about five, six years before that, so this has been 10 years ago, she graduated, and she went to work for Caterpillar, started real low level, you know, and worked her way up, and she was telling the story of Caterpillar, and this is a story that I've heard more and more in the last 10 years. Caterpillar is a successful company. It's profitable, and it was back then too. But she said everyone knew that there was something wrong in the company. It was like a low-level illness that kind of infected their decision-making. I mean, they, you have profit, and yet they were struggling to make payroll. They were struggling to open new operations. How could that possibly be for a profitable company? And so she and others who were coming out of these universities, these big universities like ISU, U of I, and all that, finally they got their voice and they said, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at profit. You've got to look at free cash flow. Free cash flow is actual money the company is bringing in versus going out. You see, if your profit is negative, ah, profit was negative this year, we got to get that fixed up here and go grow back into profitable status. It's not a real thing. But free cash flow, if that's negative, you've got to get that money from somewhere because that's the money that's paying payroll, paying utility bills, paying for new operations. You can't live in a negative free cash flow environment, certainly not year after year because you're constantly going back to the capital markets or you're draining your retained earnings to keep yourselves going. So finally, over a long period of time, we've seen more corporations moving toward free cash flow and getting away from this accounting concept of profit as meaning anything. That's why when you listen on these uh, talking heads TV shows or these look at these articles where they talk about profitability and the profit, you know that they're not the ones who have been educated in what's really going on in the corporate, in corporate theory and practice right now. It's free cash flow. Um, and and I, I told you a story of my own company. I ran a consulting firm, and I was going profitable. I mean, I was having a prof, my prop, we call, used to call P&Ls, profit and loss statement, was positive. It had been positive for like three years. And yet, every time I met, uh, had to make payroll, it was sweating bullets. There were times when I actually had to draw money out of my own account just to meet the payroll for the uh, two-week cycle. Same thing. It's free cash flow that matters. And so when we do that, we first of all have to know what we're asking about. If we're looking at a new product project, we don't look at the profit. We look at free cash flow. But there are different kinds of projects. Like, and, and of course, we do the NPV, IRR, hurdle rate kind of thing. By the way, I put up a practice problem with NPV, IRR, and, uh, and uh, hurdle rate in your uh, ReggieNet resources tab for you to practice on. And I think I even put up a worksheet, a spreadsheet, to go with it. It's called NPV-IRR, the, uh, the PDF and the worksheet. So that'll give you a little practice on that. But where did those numbers come from? I, I just, uh, there's the period zero through five, and here is the uh, free cash flow uh, for each of Well, where did that free cash flow come from? This is where we have to get into the world of how do we get it? How do you calculate a free cash flow? 
And then I'll touch on this this time, and then I'll show you more about it on Wednesday. How do we project free cash flow for the life cycle of a company? But to start this off, we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing when we find a pro we get a project and we get down there to the free cash flow? What are the beginnings of that? So the first thing that we would have to do, well, okay, the first thing that we would have to do is ask about the revenue, obviously, okay? Now, in free cash flow analysis, it's all about incremental. free cash flow, the extra. What does this project bring in? That's why we have to talk about sandboxing. We put this project into a box by itself. Nothing about the company overall, just this project standalone without any effects on or effects from the remaining parts of the company. That's where we start, and oftentimes that's where we end. We don't want the, all the other parts of the company interfering in our analysis of this. There are exceptions to that, though, and they have to do with what is called externalities. Now, I am hopeful that they have talked about this in your economics classes. Have they talked about negative and positive externalities in there? You, okay. Now, you got to be a little careful because you talk more about externalities if you're more of a liberal or progressive economist. You pretend they don't exist if you are a conservative or libertarian economist. That's in a nutshell. But we know in the real world that they do exist. We can't go overboard with them. We can't let them dominate our thinking, which I've had to fight off in consulting contracts. But externalities. There are internal externalities, and there are external externalities. And they are positive, and there are negatives. And the same is true over here. There are positive external externalities, and there are negative externals. Okay, now. As far as negative, I'll hit negatives first on the internal. The big 800-pound gorilla is cannibalism. <coughs> Can, uh, that's a negative, internal. You are taking on a project that might negatively impact revenues of another project. That's, we worked so hard to keep that from happening. And a lot of this is oriented toward marketing and specifically toward segmentation of markets, discrimination in markets. Segment the market one way or the other. Don't let this new product 
take away sales from your existing lines, unless you actually want that. And it can happen, that's why we try do all kinds of different things to keep markets from people in one market from moving over to this new product. Good examples, I mean there are hundreds of these examples and if you had ever taken me for a marketing class, I would spend a week just showing you examples in uh, commercials and in more ads on TV, ads in radio, ads in magazines and things like that. Here's uh, the thing, I'll give you an example. Uh, some years back when uh, cigarettes were still advertised, they were still generally seen as a, not necessarily a bad thing, there was a brand name uh, a company, one of the big uh, tobacco companies, had well-known brands, and I'm talking well-known brands, Winston, Salem, uh, Winston, uh, Salem, Camels, uh, that kind of stuff. And they wanted to reach a new market, but they didn't want to take any sales away from their leading brands. So they, it was actually kind of genius. They created a cigarette that looked like it was a generic, except that it had the same tobaccos as their leading brands. They packaged it for, and they did minimal advertising, and they put it on shelves where working class, lower working class, working poor would see it in the gas stations and all those kinds of places. And it was marketed as the cigarette for real people, for the common man, the common woman. And it, it just took off because it was their cigarette. And that didn't take away because those people were going to buy generics anyway. They weren't going to buy the fancy brands because they were more costly and they made these people look like they were, thought themselves too high class. So it worked and they increased their sales significantly and the kids of these working class people grew up seeing their parents using these kinds of cigarettes. They picked them up too. And it, it was brilliant marketing. They kept that, that label from cannibalizing there are other labels that still exist that were out there. Another good example, uh, a fast food holding company has a number of different fast food chains. You would recognize the chains, but you would never recognize the holding company. What they did was they, they took this one, they got a hold of this one fast food chain, and they started marketing it in a way that would push out families, push out older people, and it would embrace lower working class and middle, lower middle class customers. They came out with an ad where it showed these two rough kind of guys who looked like they just had a hard day of manual labor, and they sat down and the table and the booth behind them had a bunch of kids with their parents, and the kids were leaning over staring at them. Do you really want to be in a restaurant with this kind of people? And then they had another ad where they had a bunch of old guys sitting at a table talking and laughing kind of loudly, showed some tired working class people just looking terribly annoyed at these old farts bothering and making noise. They had another one where they had a hard, tough looking working class woman. 
She said, I just want to have a meal. I want some meat, and I don't want to hear distractions from a bunch of fancy people and yuppies. They carved out that restaurant, and it was not going to take away from their other fast food chains. That is preventing that cannibalism from happening when you do things that way. So cannibalism is something we all are worried about in, in new projects. Is this going to take away from something we already have? Well, if it is, we don't want to deal with that kind of nonsense. Now, the other side of that, the positives, oh, and cannibalism. There's a subtler effect that can happen. When a company takes on a new product, if its, its divisionalization is product-oriented, there can be a sense in these divisions where they've worked on these products for years, they've gotten success, they've gotten market share and all that. When a new kid on the block in their company comes in and they see that, that new division with that new product getting lots of funding, having the CEO down there, having all these advertisements about this new brand or whatever the hell it is, that can piss off the people, it demoralizes them by seeing that all this attention is being paid to this startup project they've got, and it, they get the sense that you're ignoring us. We're the backbone of the company. We've been producing products for years at work. So th there's that kind of subtle cannibalism that can happen. On this side, positives. Now this is the one you've got to be careful about. Synergies, products that actually help other products. They assist the purchase of other products. And do any of you have an Apple Watch? <laughs> you don't have an Apple phone, do you? You do. Synergy. See, the Apple Watch feeds the sales of the Apple uh, computers, the Apple phones, iPhones, and all that kind of stuff. That's a synergy. One that actually helps the sales of the other. Geez, he's got an Apple Watch, but I guess that means I better get an iPhone if I want one of those cool Apple Watches. Or, yeah, if I bought uh, an Apple iPhone, I could then next Christmas ask for an Apple Watch. Uh, and I'm talking to you, my niece. Uh, $799 for an Apple Watch? What the hell does the thing do? I, anyway, uh, okay, there you go. So synergies can be out there, but you have to, you can't just say, well, this is going to help the sales of our other products too. Now, you got to have good marketing data that that's really going to happen. It could, but you don't want to rely on that too much. Now, externalities, positive and negative. These are awful. And I'm going to say things that you will, might be offended by. But, okay, yeah, positive. Yes, our product will help the earth be a better place. Our product will make people nicer. More bunnies will hop around in fields without getting eaten by owls and hawks. We will make children smile and laugh and giggle. 
you know what, unless you can turn that into dollars, I don't give a rat's ass about it, don't bring it to a meeting when you're talking about your project. That's just not meaningful. If you're going to have an externality that's positive, show how that generates more revenue. A lot of people, well, I won't buy stuff from, uh, uh, let me go for the uh, negatives. Negative externalities. Our product creates pollution. It makes people cough. It makes the water foul and all that. In and of itself, that is not relevant at all. It is only if that creates a negative impression of your product that if it's going to create a liability tail, then we talk about that negative external, external externality. Uh, okay, well, we don't, you know, we've got this um, thing on Twitter, uh, boycott such and such a product because they're bad people. Do you know how much I can liquidate that as far as value goes? Zero. Nothing. Those boycotts, those morally offended people on both the left and the right, they really don't do measurable damage. And I hate to say it that way, you want to be, feel like you're part of a relevant movement, but it's got to be a hell of a movement before it even dents your revenues. So, however, if it is something where you are going to create a class action lawsuit in, uh, down the road because of a pollution that you're creating or you're creating a cancer, a car you've got a carcinogen or something like that, then we talk about it. We talk about what we're going to do to mitigate that. Mitigation through, uh, well, one thing is you have to appreciate that many products in their early technologies are a lot un uh, more unsafe than they are in their evolved technologies. It happens. We see that the product is not doing so good for the environment. We see that it's hurting people. We fix it and we go on from there. Yes, we might get a class action lawsuit. Ask yourself how far down the road it is. If I'm going to have people suing in a class action in 20 years, I've got to ask myself, what's the present value of $30 billion 20 years out? Not the damage it's going to do then, but the present value of what it's of that damage now. You've got to be objective about this, and sometimes that is morally reprehensible, as it was with cigarettes, and uh, as it was with fentanyl, and those kinds of uh, things. But you know what? Usually we know those are going to happen. We know damn well they're going to happen. But we also know that they're going to happen so far down there that the present value at the time the decision is made up or down is that present value is relatively minimal. Bill Gates knew very well in the early 1990s that he was breaking the law. He was violating federal antitrust laws. They also knew that there wouldn't be any kind of serious federal lawsuit action against Microsoft for years. Sure enough, they were right. And by the time it happened, Microsoft was so profitable that they could literally eat the government alive in the settlement. As harsh as all of that sounds, if we're going to do a project, we have to ask about that old cost-benefit thing. There's nothing in this world that's going to be perfect 
and nothing in this world is going to be without its externalities. And the negatives can probably bite you a lot more than the positives can. If you're helping the Earth, that is a wonderful thing. But the question is, is that helping your bottom line? And that's a little bit more of a speculative thing. Every company on Earth, I swear right now, is claiming that it's a green company. So even if you are, you're going up against a lot of companies that are lying and saying they are. Unfortunately. Now, here we go. This is actually not, it, it, visually when you see it, it can look complicated. But when I show you how to do this in Excel, you're going to say, is that all there is to this kind of thing? You just have to know how to put a puzzle together. So inter incremental free cash flow. You're going to take your, and remember, these are all incrementals, okay? So I'm going to take my operating income. Now that comes under, a lot of times you'll see EBIT, or earnings before interest and taxes, or something like that, or operating profit. It can come under different names, but it's pretty easy to locate it if you're not addled like I am when you look at financial statements, okay? So minus the taxes on that operating, incremental operating income. And oftentimes we'll just take 21% or whatever the top marginal tax bracket will be. <clears throat> now operating income was carrying depreciation and amortization in there. We are allowing it in there because it creates a tax shield here. But we have to, when we get real, it wasn't something that actually existed. So we're going to have to add it back. Add back depreciation and amortization expense. We add it back. Now, the operating income you will find on the income statement. Depreciation and amortization you find on the statement of cash flows. And then we're going to subtract out money that actually did happen from this project. Capital expenditures. That's money that actually did happen. How much I actually paid out. I brought this for another purpose today. A $4,500 lens. But I can't say I spent for, on the accounting statements, I can't say $4,500. All I can say is depreciate one-fifth of that, this. So even though $4,500 went out of my, like that, I can't say that $4,500, and if you touch this with your grimy fingers, I will get upset. Go on back in there, sweetheart. You're a good girl. Okay. Mm. Okay. So I have to take out what really happened, the real cash flow that went out of my wallet. And then this nasty little bastard right here. Oh, capital expenditures. That is on the statement of cash, free ca uh, statement of cash flows. You need to look at the invest, uh, investment activities block, okay? It'll be there. A caution on the accounting statement that's already stated as a negative number. So you'll have to take the absolute value of the number you find there. 
Otherwise, you get a minus, a minus gets a plus. Just be careful about that. I'll show you in a minute here. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Now, one last one. This one looks like it's very kind of complicated. The minus the change in net operating working capital. See, your revenue and expenses on the accounting statements aren't telling what really happened. See, because if I have revenue, like I, I've told you the story, $800 I sold an artwork for at a show, but I got only 200 The other part went to accounts receivable. So the $800 in operating income isn't what happened. Only $200 happened. I actually had accounts receivable go up, which is a negative hit to my uh, free cash flow. On the other hand, if accounts payable goes up, I said I spent $400, but I paid only 100 of it in the current period, so I actually freed up, compared to what the income statement said, $300. So this change in net operating working capital actually in practice Net operating working capital is going to be your current assets minus your current liabilities. So the change in net operating working capital is where your net operating working capital is now, at period zero, minus net operating working capital as it was one period before. That will be the change. Put all those together and you've got free cash flow. Let me show you. Let me pull up financial statements for a company. See what we can find here. Okay. Going in here, this is how we do it. And if I give you a problem on the final or on a quiz, just grab the stupid worksheet. I'm going to upload this to VeggieNet for you so that you can see how it works. But in doing this, I'm also pursuing that, this larger goal we have here of getting you comfortable with Excel. You'll see me do a couple of stupid pet tricks here. So just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride. We're going to go to the SEC and we're going to get the financial statements for some company. I'm thinking we should Netflix and chill. So I'm going to find a 10K because that'll be my best, the latest one. Well, yeah, there we go. So they're near the, they, their last one was at the beginning of this year. So let's just pull it up, go to interactive data, and then to the view the Excel document. Now, this can be daunting. These are monsters. They have dozens and dozens of tabs. When you get a worksheet like this, 
you start to rearrange it. Just like you would if you were in any workplace, you start moving things around where you can reach for them efficiently. Now I'm going to need the income statement. That's there. Now I also need the balance sheet and the statement of cash flows. That's not it. Oh, there's the statement of cash flows. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just slide this over so it's right there with my income statement. I still need the balance sheet. There it is. So I'm going to scooch this one in here and put it between my income statement and my statement of operations. That way these are all clustered together in a nice place. Now that's one thing. These are stupid little things that actually make it, you more productive in Excel. The next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to insert a worksheet. This will be my actual formula sheet so that I'm not messing with the uh, purity of the original statements. I've just got another sheet in there. And on this sheet, what I'm going to, and I'll call it free cash flow. That way I know exactly what it is. And then I'm going to go through. <coughs> and don't write down a label, then find the number. You get all your labels done first. Well, I'm going to need operating income. I'm also going to need, and put a little tick mark here, less taxes. And then that is, by the way, that's what's called NOPAT, net operating profit after taxes. So I can even say equals NOPAT. So now I'm going to need to add back, just to remind myself, plus, and you put that little mark there so Excel knows you don't mean actually do it, plus, and I'm going to put back depreciation and amortization expense, and then I'm going to subtract out capital expense, uh, less capital expenditures, whoops, less, minus, minus, and then minus, uh, find the delta symbol, Really? Is that hard for me to find a delta symbol? Where's my stupid delta symbol? Oh, it's, uh, oh. Change in net operating working capital. And that will equal free cash flow. Now there's one thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to do a side calculation here. Uh, 
net operating working capital in the current period and net operating working capital in the previous period. And making it look fancy, I'm going to put that as a right-click format cell subscript. And highlight, right-click, format cells, subscript for the minus one. Okay? And it's just a side calculation. This worksheet allows you a vast amount of room just to do quick, dirty, uh, back-of-the-envelope stuff. So now, double-clicking on this, okay, here we go. Operating income. This is called uh, using by reference. Equals, well, that was over here, operating income. Minus taxes. Well, we're going to take this one times, whoops, equals this one times. Right now, we've got a 21% tax rate, so that's what we'll do. And that will equal this one minus this one will equal that one. I've got no pad. Now, add back the depreciation and amortization. Remember I told you that that one is over here on the statement of cash flows. Over here somewhere. Oh, there it is. Usually it's right at the top or near the top. Okay, we got it. Minus capital expenditures. Okay, so equals. That one's on the statement of cash flows too. I said, oh. Now, here's what I was talking about. Look at your investing activity. See it right there? We want the number that is the net. But see how it's already a negative? So we are going to want to put, before we do anything else, I'm going to write absolute, ABS, open parenthesis. And then go back over there. Try that again. Why am I having a hard time? There we go. There it is. Net cash use and investment activities. Like I said, that's going to be natively a negative number. So you're going to want to, if you subtract it, you'd be subtracting a negative and it'd get a positive. So that's why I have to do that absolute thing there so that it is a positive, like we assume. Okay, so now, change in net operating working capital. Net operating working capital, balance sheet. Whoops, let's try it again. Equals, now I'm going to go to my balance sheet. Current assets. Total current assets minus total current liabilities, and there's that one. Now, I don't have to do it again because those columns were side by side. I can get the last years by just scooting this over. There you go. That saves the, 
just all these time savers. Excel can be horribly tedious, but knowing all these quick, dirty things makes you a lot more efficient. So now change is equal to the current minus the previous. So I've got that. And so we are now done. Equals, it says, take your NOPAT, add back your depreciation and amortization, minus your capital expenditures, minus your change in net operating working capital. And there it is. Try to imagine how this looked when I was doing this on a chalkboard 40 years ago. This whole thing. <laughs> and I am so damn grateful for the 21st century. Look at that. And notice something. Netflix is actually strong as hell. $6.1 billion in positive free cash flow. Yeah, that's not a company that's dying. It's having its problems. Don't get me wrong about that. But this is a company that is stable. It's got more than enough to pay its interest expense. If it wants to start paying dividends, if it wants to buy new content, it's got $6.1 billion. That's more than I have. A lot more. <clears throat> but as you can see, this is I, what I was trying to emphasize there was seeing that formula can be a little freaky. But once you know that it's just a puzzle in Excel, and it's not a very hard puzzle either, and if you want to get pretty, you can say, okay, really, these are actually dollars. So we can format it and make it into currency with no decimal places. And it looks prettier that way. So there you are. That's how we do this. And this is uploaded to the uh, ReggieNet, so you can go in and you can look through it. And you can even do this for other companies. And this is where you start actually being a real investor, relying on your own intelligence, not your, someone giving you advice or some conspiracy theory, where you can actually look at the numbers yourself and decide on investments. And in this case, if I'm looking at Netflix, you know, its price, it may be undervalued or overvalued now. But over the long haul, this looks like a pretty damn good project. And that is all I have for you today. I thank you. <laughs>